0: So the frogs are giving the dharma talk tonight, (laughs) mostly. Or is it crickets, or both? It's so still, these evenings are so, (coughs) they feel so almost melancholic in their stillness, in their poignancy. I had a student on my, I was doing a mindfulness teacher training last weekend and there was a, we were doing emotional charades, charades, we call it charades in England. And um, this person uh, acted out this emotion, which there isn't a word in, in English, there is in Russian. And it's a kind of a poignancy, which is what I feel West and I were just talking about, and in this in this kind of night, the stillness, there's a certain beauty and subtleness, and you know, it's like the air's pregnant with 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 mystery or with silence and. And it sort of speaks to us on a level that we can't, it's hard to put words onto some of this stuff. You know. But I know when I touch into that that place, like I'm feeling now and you know, just walking outside in this kind of sultry evening, There's a sense of wholeness or completeness or perfection. That everything is just as it is, everything is just so. There's a suchness, the Buddha called it suchness. Where it can't be improved upon. but we have to get a little quiet to get to feel that or sense that, right? If we're busy, rushing, doing, thinking, planning, worrying, judging, right, doesn't, that's usually louder, right? That's, That's the static interference, external, internal. And I think often, if only we just get out of our houses and cars and offices and cubicles and just spend more time outside, there's something really profound happens. Kind of quiets our nervous system. the busyness and the projects and the grand plans and the me and my life and all of that stuff that seems so important so much of the time, you know, for me it all just like who cares, you know. (laughs) So what (laughs) you know. I mean, you know, we have to take care of business and go to work and pay the rent and all that, you know, it's not like we just ignore that, but it's like it puts it in perspective. Like what's really important. What's really a value? I know sometimes, and people have said this, uh, um, people often speak of a, a sadness that comes on retreat when we get quiet and come out into nature and it's so serene or beautiful. <coughs> someone mentioned it yesterday in the groups There's a certain um, a certain poignancy and I think it's partly because it's a certain kind of grief that we feel when we come home to ourselves because we've been so far from ourselves that we feel a certain loss and we sort of wake up to that how distant we are from being at home in our own being and so there's actually a I think a healthy sadness or a healthy uh, grief or recognition like, oh, look at that. Look how far, how busy, how speeded up and therefore further from my own being, the depth of who I am. And there's a lot that's lost in that, in that busyness. And it's actually sort of an uncomfortable transition to settling into that because we had, do have to feel some of the discomfort of not being there and also of course in that we, we also have to feel what is there right? which is also not necessarily so comfortable or easy so some of you talked today about you know this you know difficult things that come up you know in the particularly in the heart, in an emotional life, in the deeper swells of our life, the losses, the disappointments, the midlife crises, the uh, you know, existential crises of what, who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing with life? With my life? Since, as Wes pointed out, we actually have that burden these days. We didn't have that burden probably a hundred years ago, but now we do, to some degree, represented with this choice. Who are you? What are you gonna make of your life? And where are you going? And what's your contribution? Oh, good questions, but also can be very burdensome. There's a cartoon, three-caption cartoon. The first caption says, the history of man And the second caption is a picture of a man scratching his chin. And the thought bubble says, What the hell is happening here? And the third caption is, The end. (laughs) So we're in the middle. (laughs) What the hell is happening here? What am I doing? Who am I supposed to be? What's the rules? like? Did anybody give me the manual for life? I don't remember getting that one. So, you know for me and I think for many of us the Dharma teachings framework path perspective is really a helpful manual to that question what am I doing here how do I even ask that question how do I even look how do I know so you know we've been cultivating this gift of awareness through mindfulness practice, we start <coughs> to look, we start to pay attention, we start to wake up, we get curious. What is this thing called life, called me, called Mark? called self, called, you know? And what is all this inner torment that keeps completely making it hard to enjoy these lovely evenings? You know, what, what gets in the way? What's interfering with this innate well-being, uh, it's essential Buddha nature. Some of us have a hard time finding it. What do you mean Buddha nature? Where is it? <laughs> I haven't found it yet. <laughs> it's a quote from Einstein, another quote from Einstein that who said, perhaps the fundamental freedom that anyone possesses is the choice of where to put their attention. The fundamental freedom we possess is where we place our attention. So right now, just for the fun of it, try not being aware. Try not being mindful. Try not paying attention. Try not noticing anything. And just do it for a few seconds. Try not to notice. Anybody succeed? Anybody pass? Get grade A? Right. You are noticing something, right? No matter how hard you try, okay, I'm not gonna think. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna think. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm just not gonna do anything. Um. Right. We can't step out of it. It's this. It's this. It's the fish in the sea. Right. We're swimming in awareness. So the question is, you know, back to Einstein's point, where what are we doing with that attention? Where are we placing that awareness? If we're always aware, if awareness is always aware of something, which it is, then what is it aware of? This seems like a really important question, you know, in the Neuroscientists are exploring this a lot. The the, the nature of the brain is plastic, and neuroplasticity is revealing that we can change our structure and our brain patterns and behavior through how and where we place our attention. Through mindfulness, hence the fascination in neuroscience with mindfulness, because it transforms the brain and our life. As we've known about for a few thousand years, science is just catching on as it does, a little slow. So that's a question for you. If you, if if awareness is always a present to something, what are we present to? Where are we placing our attention? Right? And mostly, it's from the eyebrows upwards, right? in this little band of cortex. Right? That's mostly where our attention is fixed on our thoughts and worries and fears and plans and dramas about me. Is where so. Eloquently talked about it yesterday. So, poem for you, Russian poet Anna Akhmatova. It's called "Everything is Plundered." Everything is plundered, betrayed, and sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Then why do we not despair? By day, from the surrounding woods, spring, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep, transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous come so close to the ruined, dirty houses, something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. So there kind of lays out the human dilemma. Everything is plundered, miseries gnaws to the bone, then why do we not despair? Summer blows cherries into town, blossoms, transparent galaxies, and the miraculous comes so close to the grind of life. If we have the presence to behold it. So, and usually we, you know, we either oscillate or we fixate on one side of the spectrum or another. You know, we see the misery, we see what's wrong, we see decay, or we see those beautiful yellow flowers emerging in the middle of a baking hot. Dry drought, you know the tenacity of life, the beauty that keeps poking its head out of the brown, dirty grasses, so this is a question for you: Where do you do with your attention? Where does it orient? And the Buddha said in one of my favorite lines about. Inclining the mind, whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Whatever we oriented habitually towards, then that's what we become, that's what we see. We see what we are, usually. So, to be mindful of our inclination. Do you go to deficiency? Do you go to what's wrong? Do you go to the problems in life? Do you go to all the ways that you're not good enough? Anybody do that? <laughs> All right? It's you know, it's it's that threat, fear, survival orientation, which psychologically creates so much torment for us. So, fortunately, you know the these practices of awareness, mindfulness, really. F- mm, uh, provide a way through dealing with this this human predicament, but it requires training and practice and study, and you know it doesn 't just happen on the first time you read a book about mindfulness. So first we have to be present, we have to show up, we have to be willing to be here with all of it. Which is, uh, as some of you are wonderfully reporting, you know, like willing to be here with the flies burrowing into your ear hole, you know, and your eyelids and up your nose and, and almost finding some Amusement at this point, you know, first it was irritation I don't want the flies. They're spoiling my nice sunny afternoon Mm. To suddenly oh, it's just you know, it's part of life in the meadow, you know So how do we greet that meet that? Which is really how I think of mindfulness practices how we meet experience how we meet ourselves how we meet the moment Do we welcome it, do we fight it, do we judge it, do we hate it, do we collapse into self-pity and victimness, victimhood? So this is uh, um, uh, an example of of one way of describing this orientation. Uh, This is from, uh, I think, by Chosen Bays, who is a student of Harada Roshi. And it goes, In this passing moment, all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, like today, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. So, that's kind of a radical orientation, right? If it's hot, I choose to be hot. If I'm hungry, I choose to be hungry. Reminds me of this Zen story of three Zen students who are sitting around talking about their teachers and one says, oh, my teacher's the best. He can you know, sit and meditate for days without eating. Uh, and the other says, oh, my my." my my, uh, my master's better, he can go days without sleeping. And the other one says, I think my master is wiser when, when he's hungry he eats and when he's tired he sleeps. <laughs> uh, so, you know, meeting, with, meeting what is, right? with awareness and then with wisdom. The point of the practice of awareness and mindfulness is to develop clarity and insight and understanding, wisdom. And, and which also opens the heart. So I want to just talk about a couple of things here, um, more than a couple of things probably by the time I finish rambling on, but um, looking at what are some of the things that we see and how do we respond to them. Right? So one of the, the ways the Buddha talked about um, the, the, nature of, the nature of our phenomenal experience has certain characteristics. One of the characteristics that we see, or as we've been seeing very evidently every moment in, uh, here in this retreat, is things change. Things are transient, things are conditioned and constantly in flux, internally, externally, mentally, physically, environmentally. Right? And, how, and the question is, how do we meet that? How do we meet the changing circumstances? How do we meet the moment when we finally have a moment of peace and quiet in the meditation? Our mind finally, for whatever reason, shuts up and we go, oh, finally I've arrived. You know, Some people were talking today about this phenomenon that happens when you have sat a bunch of retreats. You kind of know by about the end of day three that your mind gets into some kind of concentration samadhi. And things get a lot easier. In the first few days, like mm -mm, you're tired, restless, grumpy, and and so you kind of can cruise a little bit until you get to that point, right? So I call postponing mind, right? And um, and then uh, and then and at some point, it's things you know the, the samadhi concentration grows and things get easier. Right? So we've, you know, maybe at times you've been had moments where it's like, oh, finally I've arrived. <laughs> all those hindrances are not so pressing, and I'm present, and I'm poor, I'm not sleeping all the time, I'm not restless, and not wanting to be somewhere else, I'm just here. And that lasts for some delicious few seconds, few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get so excited that it's here, oh my God, I can't wait, it's gonna be all like this now for the rest of the retreat. Great, I'm gonna sit for hours. We get so excited, we get so restless, and we're back again, lost in you know hindrances and crazy mind and wanting to be somewhere else. And it doesn't take very long for that next state to dissolve and a new one to emerge. And or we take birth and like, oh great, I'm finally in this great you know concentration. I'm going to start teaching this now because I'm so good and you know and <laughs> I'm this great world renowned teacher and have these great apps, you know and. I think I'm joking about the apps. (laughs) (laughs) It's their way forward. (laughs) So this is from Ellen Bass called Waking Grievers. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch somebody? If you were taking tickets tickets, for example, at the theater, Tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care not to touch that palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd be out with her aunt. They had just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? What would people look like if we see them pinned against time? which we are, you know, for a while until pin pops out. You know, And I'm sure you have, as I have, many more and more recent, more and more frequently these days, you know, I wake up and I, you know, get an email or a phone call that a friend's died or a loved one or, you know, it's, we never know, we never know. So how do we meet that? How do we meet that uncertainty? How do we meet that loss? How do we meet the changing vicissitudes? Again, some of you talked about in the groups, the challenges of the changing circumstances. How do we respond? How do we hold that? How do we hold ourselves? How do we hold each other through those times of loss and transition and change? And, you know, there can be different responses. We can shut down, we recoil, we harden our heart, we commit never to open and expose ourselves to risk, it's one option, Yeah, know, we open and we feel the burning of loss and, and love and, and rupture, and we also commit to, the, to, to being fully with that, with that process. Just to, to not do that is to is to die in a certain way, is to, is to go numb. It's a lovely part of a poem that uh, Mary Oliver, um, she's talking about uh, the black fires of loss, and she says, to live in this world, you must learn how to do three things, to love what is mortal, To hold it against your bones as if your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To love what is moral, to love what is here. Again, it's not disdaining, it's not removing, it's not distancing oneself out of fear, but actually really embracing. And mindfulness is is an embracing of the moment, engagement with the moment, and holding on to that thing as if our own life depended on it which it often does because we do depend on each other and then when the time comes to let it go to let it go which is of course the hardest piece and sometimes takes years to let go many years to really fully and it's part of the grieving process grieving is a process of coming to peace with loss with change This is from Jennifer, Jennifer Wellwood, local teacher, who writes, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. This is the two lines I think are really pertinent. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. That's really a lot of Dharma practice right there. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Have you ever tried to get a run, run away from something? <laughs> As if that would work. Oh, I'll move to Hawaii. <laughs> All right, I take my mind with me. That's such a drag. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Each thing that I wel- I welcome I let in, right? It metabolizes us and it becomes it, it, it matures us. It, it it opens our heart. It softens. It tenderizes our heart. These losses, these these wounds, these traumas, these pains, right? But it's also what makes us a full, ripe human being. So what else do we, that happens when we meet our experience here or anywhere? What else do we see? Well, with, with, with understanding that everything is changing, we also um, come cl- close to the second characteristic, which is, which is the uncertainty and the unreliability and the undependability and therefore the unsatisfactory quality of being in this phenomenal changing world. Where do we look for security? if we know everything is going to go, including us, including our mind, including our body, our memory's already half on the way out, you know um, How do we stay present to that? The uncertainty, you know whether it's economic, social circumstances, bodily health. You know, and the Buddha talked about, we have certain reactions to that. One of the, th- one of the things we do is we, we, we cling, we hold on. You know we try to hold on to someone, a relationship, a situation, our bodies, you know. you name it. Think about all the things that you've clutched onto in your life, or still clutching onto. Right? Many things: status, mm, economic, social status. Uh, material, comfort, youth, that always works, right, doesn't it? Holding on to youth. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's why the Buddha taught, he said, you know, I see people wanting to be happy and doing all the wrong things, thinking that's gonna make them happy, like holding on, like denying change. So we grasp onto stuff. And of course, our culture loves that we grasp onto stuff because it keeps the GDP healthy. I want to read you my favorite cartoon. I mean, it's not quite carto- an ad, it's kind of like a cartoon. Um, it's from Outside Magazine. And it's about this tendency of wanting to hold on as if that will be a ballast and security against these vicissitudes. There's a guy sitting in meditation like this, as they always do in the ads, <laughs> as if you, that would be good bicep training. Try doing that for 40 minutes. Like It's, it's like a workout. You, know, you feel it. Um, anyhow, so he's sitting in front of all of his stuff. He's got his truck and his bike and his kayak and his scuba and his surfboard and his skis and his dog and his computer and his guitar and his golf clubs and all that. And it says, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. Yeah, wait, Ranger, yeah, it's real. <laughs> Ranger four door super cab, it could be you. <laughs> Easy access to inner peace which makes him one happy soul. You know. <laughs> I actually know Bill Ford, I keep meaning to send him that. It's like, did you know your company is doing that? <laughs> Because he's a meditator, he's a practitioner, he comes here and practices sometimes. Anyhow. So the, um, yeah, the, 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 mm, you know, the particular challenges we face being human, and I want to speak to one of those, which is, because I've heard some of it today, we both heard some of it today, which is the you know, so we have the the, the, the challenge of, of just being human being. We have the challenge of a mind, right, that's out of control. As Wes says, we've lost the operating we lost the operating manual, or we never got the operating manual, and we lost the off switch. And this is maybe a misquote, but anyway, I attribute it to you. Uh <laughs> and you know, we have a body that, as Wes said, we didn't order, right, that has all kinds of, you know, challenges. There's a dear friend of ours on the retreat down the hill who has fourth-stage cancer. You know, we have, you know, real challenges. And the challenges of the heart, you know, just the tenderness of, of being human, the tenderness of all the things that we feel, you know, the losses and the disappointments and the, the conditioning and the loneliness and the emptiness. And what some people were speaking to today was the torment of the, the, the critic, the the heckler, or as one of my colleagues puts it, the inner roommate, which I said, well, it's really a dorm, actually, of roommates, you know, like bad, conflicting, Annoying roommates who are commenting and judging and heckling and giving views and opinions about how well you're doing and how unmindful you're walking and how you know how silly you dress and how better everybody else is and how if you'd only started this twenty years ago when it when I told you to you'd be much <laughs> more advanced and if you'd only read that book and if you'd only done your homework and blah, yada 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 right. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, the, you know, becomes, and it sort of morphs into uh, your coach wherever you go. So right now it's your meditation coach, as if it knows how to meditate, you know. Okay, doing good now, your breath, yeah, breathe in, breathe out, good, good, doing well, good, (laughs) stay on track. Oh no, you are, God, I can't believe your thought again. God, I can't (laughs) believe. Okay, start again, start again. You're doing good, you're doing good. Oh, God, you did it again. You spaced out, God. You're the only one. Everybody else, look, look, look around. Everybody else looks really calm. <laughs> how many times have you had that thought? You open your eyes, like shit. Everyone looks really mindful. I wish they would sc- start scratching those flies or something. And it's like, who? How did that get in there? Like, who signed up for that? Right? It's an old roommate. This is a uh, rhymes with orange cartoon. It's called a checklist of feeling pathetic. It's very common meditation um, pastimes. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Right? Like you've all found the best yogi, right? The best meditator, the best walker, right? Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Very popular meditation. Uh, pastime. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> and, I, and I add, especially people who share your last name. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And this woman's getting called from, hey, you look great. And she's saying, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, re- resign yourself from believing that from now on this is how you will always feel. Okay. And you can't win with the critic, right? You know, it. you wake up in the morning, maybe you didn't sleep well, your roommate was snoring and the thought comes up, oh, you know, you should, then they talk about loving kindness to yourself? You know, you should sleep in, you take care of your body, you know, nurture yourself. You go, yeah, it's a good idea. I'll sleep in. Then you wake up and it's 7.30. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're such a slob. I can't believe you missed this sit and you missed it for breakfast. And I can't believe everyone's going to know that you weren't there. And, right? You can't win with the critic. You can't please it. Although we try to. We can't make it happy and we can never win. You can't beat the critic in an argument. It will always find a way. So again, you know, how do we meet this? You know, sometimes, you know, mostly we're meeting things with awareness and with kindness and welcoming and with the critic we often need a little more we need certainly clarity, naming oh judging, 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 judging. <laughs> right, and all that story and then um, you know and then sometimes a little firmness like not now like no thank you or thank you for your opinion thank you for your point of view because it's a point of view like you're a piece of shit that's thank you for your point of view (laughs) that is one perspective on reality thank you and chill go away right to you know you can get the sword out like no stop enough not useful not helpful not accurate not true stop you know and sometimes none of these strategies work every time but there are times when you we can be a little more fierce and say no just as if you were had your best friend walking around and was verbalizing your um, all of your foibles and faults like your critic does every couple of minutes right how long would you put up with that you wouldn't you would just say shut up already like you know stop but because we often believe it, we let it go on and on and on and on. And even if it's true, there's no justification for our beating ourselves up. It's just, okay, I messed up, I learn, I let go, I forgive myself, let's move on. So so be, be mindful when that voice is there. You know, recognizing it, name it. You don't need to welcome it for tea, as somebody said today. Um, So with difficult um, waves that come through, as many of you have been reporting, whether it's sadness or loss or fear or anxiety or self-judgment or unworthiness or angst, or you know, the, the mnemonic RAIN I think is really helpful because it, it integrates a lot of um, um, qualities that I think are important on the path. So R stands for recognize. Acknowledging what's here. Oh, sadness. Oh, grieving. Oh, loss. Okay. Can I just, and the second A stands for allow. Can I allow it, which means, and can I hold it actually with a kind-heartedness? Can I infuse my awareness with kindness? Ultimately, we want to be meeting our experience not just with clarity, but also with warmth, with receptivity, with kindness, with compassion, with tenderness for the, struggle of that it is to be human and then we want to explore we want to investigate i what is this how do i feel this what triggers it what what triggers it into being or maybe it's that thought that thought of regret triggers me back into that spiral of self-judgment and self-doubt what allows it to cease Sometimes shifting the attention away from it because it's too much, it's too overwhelming, we drown in it, so okay, let's shift my attention to the sounds, to the to open my eyes, look at the, the meadow. Oh yeah, there's not just this torment, but there's also, oh yeah, it's a beautiful summer day at Spirit Rock. I was a million miles away, back home in my life. I investigate what allows us, allows us to, to come to ease with it. And then the N is for non-identif- non, non-identifying or non-personal, which when we, when we allow that process of recognizing, allowing, investigating, actually the, the non-identifying happens by itself, as in we create this space of awareness where we're not so bound, we're not so caught. Right? And so we actually have to, we grow the ability to tolerate our stuff. Our stuff isn't going to go away a lot of myths about spiritual practice being this staircase to heaven, right? Just gets easier and easier, and happier and happier, and you get more enlightened, and everything looks really great, and happily ever after. Spiritual enlightenment time at home, right? Sounds really good. That's sort of the myth of spirituality, and, and the myth of you know the myth of the Buddhist path that's sometimes painted. Gets happier and happier, and easier and easier. Has anybody, you know? Uh, well, is that true? You know, I, just, I just invite you to look at that. You know, does life get easier as you get older? I mean, we, get, we grow wiser, hopefully, and more you know, wisdom and all of that, but life doesn't get any easier. Life goes on, it actually gets harder because the body starts deteriorating and we start losing our loved ones and all kinds of things. But we can grow the capacity to hold it that's that's where that's what the freedom is. The freedom beyond conditions means we can have the capacity to flow with those vicissitudes we can we can meet it with kindness we can meet it with tenderness we can meet it with um, uh, some welcoming um, i remember I, I talked about this uh, actually i didn't talk about it here um, i was um A few years ago, I was uh, on my way to do a riding retreat up in the Northwest, up in BC, actually, in some remote island, and it took a couple of planes and a couple of shuttles and taxi and ferries, two ferries, and just ridiculous, long, um, I think I was solely responsible for climate change, actually, just on that trip, getting there. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, it it was a lot of vehicles to get to this place. Uh, and I got into this, you know, kind of remote, not that remote, but pretty remote island and up in B.C. And uh, and I freaked out. I kind of had this freak out of being isolated and it, it brought up this early trauma and memories of, of abandonment and isolation and just really traumatic associations with being alone. And, uh, and it brought up tremendous anxiety Um. And I'd also just started a relationship which was also kind of feeding the anxiety. And um, I couldn't write, I couldn't stay. I came home, it was very humbling. And I thought I'd come home and it would all sort of settle and it just kept getting worse, it just kept growing. And um, so I do all my practices and mindfulness and breathing and metta and, basically trying to get rid of it <laughs> trying to <laughs> meditate it away you know if I just you know get really present and you know get really calm it will just you know just kind of get rid of it as we do right it's the first first stop right is that like, how do I get rid of? It? how do I avoid this how do I bypass it and some things we can't bypass right so whether it's body pain mental pain emotional pain and at some point, it, we get ground down, so we have to finally surrender. We, we, know, we, 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 know, we, we have to yield, we have to open, we have to feel, we have to eventually meet it with a kind heart, because you know, that's really what allows the, us to hold difficulty, right? The awareness helps, but the, it's the love that provides the holding, just as when we hold a child in distress, right? It's the love that really soothes the child Right? So, in the same way, we, we hold ourselves, or we try to, or we make that intention to hold ourselves with a loving presence, kindness. And, and so, over time, real, realizing I couldn't get rid of it, fix it, figure it out, bypass it, I just had to keep softening into and meeting it with love, meeting it with this tender awareness to hold, we soften my body and my nervous system, and so, so it can actually tolerate the anxiety and um you know many months later it um you know started to uh fade you know but it was you know many months of holding and 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 presence so to think about the ways that you the obstacles that you meet in yourself and ha- and, and how do you meet them you know think about what supports you holding those, meeting those. There's this lovely poem that is, an, uh, I'm not sure if it's anonymous or whether it's by Daniel Mead. I've never quite found the the author, but um, it goes like this. If you would grow to your best self, be patient and not demanding, accepting, not condemning, nurturing, not withholding, self-marveling, not belittling, gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies, but open fully only to warmth and light. And our need to grow is fragile as a fragrance dispersed by storms of will, returning when the storms are still. So accept and respect, attend your sensitivity, a flower cannot be opened with a hammer. So, and I think the, the significant part of practice, um, in terms of uh, transformation in practice, is when we are really willing to open and turn to, towards whatever's here. Right? We're not trying to get, meditate to get to a state, We're not trying to fix ourselves, we're not trying to improve ourselves, we're not trying to work on our personality, we're simply showing up and meeting the truth of what's here, the truth of ourselves, the truth of each other, the truth of, um, you know, the ecological crisis, uh, or whatever truth that we're meeting, to show up and embrace it. That's why we practice to show up and give that pretty courageous, resilient presence to ourselves, to each other. Right? And the more we do our inner work, the more that we can show up for someone, a loved one, strangers, our clients, patients, students, with that quality of presence. I see that in myself, that the, the hard work that I do here gives a certain skill and capacity to offer that. To others, but it requires that we are committed to turning into, you know, as Achanchal says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it, right? So you either run away and get hit in the face, or you turn towards it and actually allow it to transform you. Okay? One is a slightly more painful road. <laughs> Both require confronting the the challenge. So I want to read a poem, and then I can say I'll close with a couple of um other comments, which is really what I wanted to get to, but as you know, sometimes talks you never quite get to the <laughs> whatever it is you want to get to <laughs> anyhow, maybe some other time um so oh, you right, this poem is uh, a poem I wrote probably in the, in when I was going through some of this this um mm. it's called Judy. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep in your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare and feels like the wind will pierce those empty places within. You could always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in more empty. But when you embrace the starved parts of your being and you touch the void that you've spent a lifetime running from with gentle hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This begins, this begins the first step, a slow journey of completeness. Keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting that is always right here. So we turn. This is really the, I think, in the maturity and Dhamma practice. We, we turn, we welcome, we embrace, we open. So, um, of course that's just one part of the story, right? There's, I don't have time to talk about other dimensions of our experience, but, um, You know, I've been speaking about some of the characteristics of our experience, some of the harder stuff, of course, but it's not just the harder stuff. There's also the, um, the joys and the mysteries as we've been tasting and touching. Right? I wanted to speak to the more of the challenges because even though we're in this very tranquil setting, right, with everything supporting us to be at peace, it doesn't mean that that's our inner experience. And sometimes actually the juxtaposition of the serenity and the inner turmoil is actually quite painful because we you're asking ourselves, how come it's hard to be, be peaceful here when it's so peaceful and yet I'm just torn up with my, you know, stuff? And so, you know, just as the Buddha said earlier about inclining the mind, we also want to make sure that we are inclining our minds to not just the inner turmoil, but also what's beautiful here, what's supporting nourishment and life and joy. It's a poem from Jack Gilbert, and I'll close in a moment. Um, Briefcase for the defense. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else. With flies in their nostrils, but we enjoy our lives because that's what is asked. Otherwise the mornings before summer dawn could not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. So, very powerful words. You know, to really acknowledge the sorrow and the suffering but also to note to acknowledge the stripes of the bengal tiger to, to acknowledge those yellow flowers emerging in the meadow to acknowledge the frogs who are you know chanting tonight here and then disappearing in panama mostly you know. can we hold both the 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 um you know, the diminishing hole in the ozone layer that is now uh, actually regrowing itself uh, since because we banned CFCs in the 80s, and now this latest data is that the ozone layer is healing itself. Can we hold both? So let's sit with the chirping of the frogs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.